0: Okay, so today we do have the privilege of hearing from Kurt Smith, uh, who's going to be sharing the morning message. And uh, Kurt has been the president of the Indiana Family Institute for 18 years until, what, three years ago, became the board uh, chairman. As most of you know, IFI is uh, one of the pro-family, pro-life groups that we support financially. and. Kurt has been with us before. I thought it was just a couple years ago, but I looked, and it was way back in 2016. So it's been some time. This happens when you get older. Time has a way of warping itself. But um, uh, as we listen to him again, we might um, just take into account his 40-plus year career in public policy work. I'll just mention a few things here before coming to IFI, Indiana Family Institute. He worked at Capitol Hill as press secretary, campaign manager, communications director, state director, and chief of staff of um, over a 15-year span with U.S. Senator Dan Coats and um, Representative John Hotstetler. And before that, he worked for various newspapers. So he has a history of knowing what's going on in our culture and motivating Christians to rise up against the ongoing forces that are harmful to families, to churches, to the gospel, and to society at large. So we're glad that he's on our side. He is one of us. He is a friend. So please welcome Kurt Smith this morning. Thank you very much. It's
1: always a treat to be invited to to speak. It's even better to be invited to come back. That's that's a good sign when uh, they ask you to come back. Last time I was here, however, my wife was not with me, so I'd like to introduce Debbie here in the front row. Thank you for coming up, sweetheart. And uh, this uh, timing this timing worked out well. For Father's Day, her, pa- her father lives in Marion, Indiana. So after the service, we're going to go back through Marion on our way back down to Indianapolis and, and say hi. Um, I have kind of a big assignment today. Your pastor asked me to talk about the three isms that are really pressing in on the church. Socialism, humanism, and journalism. That's a joke. <laughs> I used to get a bigger laugh, but uh, these days, you know. But uh, I am a recovering journalist, so I can tell journalism jokes. and. Uh, I uh, grew up being curious kid and wanted to write for newspapers. No one in our family. My dad was a CPA and my, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. But I uh, somehow got interested in the newspapers. It seemed like the people that made the newspaper knew all this stuff yesterday. And, then, you know, now it's on my, so I, they know what's going on. I want to hang out with those folks. So I went to IU and learned the six famous questions they teach journalists, who, what, when, where, how, and why. And after a year in Richmond, Indiana, after graduating, I ended up here at the Journal-Gazette in Fort Wayne. And this is where my journalism career ended. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. Um, There aren't a lot of good answers to the the why question. Um, You know, early in your career in journalism, it's common to be the police reporter, where you're asked to go out and kind of chronicle man's inhumanity to man. And uh, even in a good city like Fort Wayne, uh, 300,000 people or so, there's lots of crime. There's lots of heartache. There's, there's lots of problems. And that started kind of eating away at me. And uh, we were madly in love and moved here and lived down in the Lakeside neighborhood close to the newspaper. And uh, but I just could not get rid of this nagging, what is wrong with the world? Why do all these things happen? Now, I Finally graduated from the police beat and started doing some other things, so I got to hang out with more normal people. You know, a mayor who was indicted for campaign fraud, uh, <laughs> city council members who were stealing from each other, you know, a congressional aide who didn't understand the law and failed to file some reports. So, you know, a little, little higher class people there. And, uh, but I really started a spiritual journey and became active with a ministry called the Christian Businessmen's Committee, and it would take a lot longer today than we have to explain all that, but my wife's brother was very instrumental in my com- coming to know the Christian Businessmen's Committee, CBMC, and I finally met with a fellow, and he shared the gospel in a way that I heard. I had not grown up in the church. I, I did not know the Bible, but I heard the gospel that day kind of through a, a safe set of circumstances in a restaurant on Coliseum Boulevard, and I prayed to receive Christ in November of 1981. Two days later, Debbie prayed to receive Christ, same, same fellow, and his wife took us to church, and, and uh, then they started discipling us. Well, the local congressman at the time was Dan Coates, and he heard I'd become a Christian, so he called me up and said, Kurt, i got to get you out of that newsroom now that you're a believer. And uh, no, again, I'm, I'm trying to tease you people a little bit here. Uh, But through a set of circumstances, Dan did offer me a job, and I went to work on Capitol Hill. And uh, he was a great friend and mentor. We still talk. I've talked to him twice in the last week. We have a friend going through a tough time. Uh, But because I had not grown up in the church or been to Bible college, I started as a young believer just reading through the scriptures. And I'm working on Capitol Hill, and I'm trying to understand what God had to say about government. And a speaker I heard once challenged us to read through the Bible every year, and I was able to do that 10 years in a row and kind of take notes on what the Bible says about government. And I wrote a little devotional as a result of that, and then I thought, you know, I want to be careful, as I came to the Family Institute now, uh, many years later, and uh, be, be careful with my theology that I'm not out here kind of misunderstanding so I went to seminary and took those ideas that I had written from the Bible and, and uh, did a thesis on God and government and was uh, blessed. I picked a good, good seminary, Trinity Evangelical. Does that name ring a bell? Uh, <laughs> Divinity School up, up in the Chicago area. Very good, solid, conservative Bible teaching uh, institution. And that resulted in a, in a book I wrote. I wrote. Uh, would like to think I'm a bit of a theologian, I'm not a very good marketer, I gave it a name deicide, and everyone thinks I misspelled decide, <laughs> uh, but this is Latin for killing God, and the argument in my book is we have eliminated God, killed him, run him out of the public square, and, and we're paying uh, just a really, really big consequence uh, from that. So I thought today I would share some of the principles I gleaned from those readings, and then um, I've got a little show-and-tell. I brought some old books along, uh, Bibles and uh, Calvin's Institutes and Aquinas' work. Uh, Just so you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of great uh, leaders and and, uh, teachers. Now, what your pastor seriously asked me to do was to help you have just a better working knowledge, not only what the Bible says about government— but how you can respond to some of your friends or family members or colleagues or co-workers who say, oh, you religious people are ruining politics, you need to stay out of government, you know, you can't do this. So I've titled this sermon Uncle Eddie. Anybody know that crazy character from the movies Uncle Eddie? He's the in-law who's always drunk and never has enough money. And uh, we all have Uncle Eddies in our life that might be a relative, it might be someone at work that gives you a hard time. But I hope when you leave here today, you'll have a couple new thoughts, a couple of ways of talking about why it's not only important that Christians be involved in public life in America, but it's imperative. It's it's necessary, and our absence is creating big, big problems for our culture. So you will see as I share this, I come at this with two basic ideas. Number one is things in America are different than a lot of other places. We are the government. We are the owners of the government. We the people is the first three words in the Constitution. I think Lincoln said it best. We have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And we have the right to vote, but I would argue we have the responsibility to vote. And as we've prayed already for the fathers to be good stewards and good leaders in their families, we need to be good Christian citizens and be able to cast our vote wisely and well to select leaders. So that idea of America is is different, is going to be part and parcel of what I share today. Another thought that I hope you walk out of here with is the whole idea of stewardship. And I'll just kind of foreshadow a little bit and say uh, about 40% of our money goes to government through taxes. We pay all kinds of taxes. Now you might be thinking about your income taxes or your, but we pay property taxes, we pay sales tax, we pay taxes on our cell phones over and above, our, ca- our cable bill has other taxes, and then there are the big ones, you know, Social Security, federal and state income tax, uh, and, and sales tax. So all combined, all levels of government, about 40% of our money goes to um, the government. And so we want to be good stewards of those dollars. Just as we prayed earlier, we want the stewardship team here to know how to invest kingdom dollars well and wisely, and we certainly thank you for investing in the Family Institute, and I'll share a couple things that we're up to so you know where those dollars go. Um, But when we think about our relationship with government, sometimes we forget that we're sending them a ton of money, (laughs) and it's easy to forget that because it's just kind of hidden. just kind of comes out of our paycheck, or it just is added to the... Credit card bill, or when you put your gas in the car, you know it doesn't spit it out and say, you know, you just doubled the value of your car, and uh, twelve dollars of that is is going to the federal and state government for roads and bridges and and other things. So those are kind of the organizing principles, and I thought I'd just take you through a couple of examples and uh, share a, a passage, um, and then I'm going to close at the end with some of these books and explain a little bit of their significance. And if you have a couple minutes and can linger, I'd love for you to come up and hold these books. One of them is an 800-year-old Bible written in Latin, hand done. Uh, Another is uh, 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 a Bible that was done about 1480 by uh, Wycliffe, if if you've heard of Wycliffe translators. Uh, Wycliffe argued that the people should have the Word of God in their own language. He wanted it English. Luther argued for German because he was he was a German. And uh, the church was very opposed to that. They didn't want people to have access to the scriptures for lots of reasons. You know, their argument was people don't know how to handle God's Word. You need to be trained. Um, Others thought they were trying to they wanted to kind of hold back because the church wasn't really following God's Word. So that was that, that fight in that day, and Wycliffe started writing it in English, and he was put to death for that. 200 years later, another English theologian, Tyndale, if you've heard of the Tyndale House Publishers, named for him, uh, Tyndale also wanted to put things in English. By then, Gutenberg's press had started, so now we're doing texts, we're printing books, and so we've got a Tyndale uh, Bible up here as well. And these all come from an organization I could tell you a whole lot about, but... Uh, Uh, They have 1,600 works. Many of them have a religious significance. Um, And it's all down in Indianapolis. And if you're ever down there, I'd love to give you a tour of the uh, collection and show you about... Some people say it's worth $50 million. Uh, Some people say it's maybe 25 million. We think the ideas are are what are valuable. But anyway, I'll be be closing with that. So as I said, when I read through the Bible uh, those times, I kind of came away with three basic conclusions that I, I found later in seminary were, were kind of what some of these theologians had, had recognized and uh, acknowledged earlier, but we kind of lost this way of thinking. First of all, government is God's idea. It's, it's God's idea. He wanted to be the, the king of Israel, and Israel rejects him in, in one of Samuel's uh, books. And he says, okay, so you're going to have kings, and here's what it's going to look like, and it's not going to be good. Um, Christ comes along later and kind of separates government and the the faith community with uh, the passage from Matthew that I'm going to read here in a moment that uh, talks about render under Caesar what is Caesar's and render under God uh, what is God's. And in fact, I will kind of start the show and tell here. If you remember that story, which I'll read here in a moment, Christ says, bring me a a denarius, a coin, and you can actually buy these on the internet. This is not a priceless museum piece. This would be several hundred dollars. This is a 2,000-year-old silver denarius. So I'll start it here, pass it around, take a look. If you just hold it, you can't hurt it. If you get your, you know, ammo box out or something, you you could do it harm. But just pass it around the the, uh, sanctuary and let people uh, uh, see it. But, but first, government is God's idea. The next thing I noticed as I read through the scriptures was gov- God gives government unique responsibilities. There are things that government can do. Only government is authorized in the Bible to take life. And if you read a little deeper into the Gospels, that's why the religious leaders bring Christ to the Roman uh, political leaders, because they can't put him to death. And they say, we want you to kill Christ. Because they're Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, did not allow them uh, to take life. So another very important responsibility of government is to declare what's good and what's bad. And that happens all the time. We pass laws, we tax things, we praise the baseball team that wins the state championship, and we put bad guys and gals in, in jail. So government has that role as well. The thing that maybe was a little more unique to me and some of my reading was I read through the Bible and I concluded that government is a high calling. Many of my conservative friends are pretty negative about government, and that's, you know, government deserves and earns its low ratings every day, but they're pretty hard on government. It sounded like we had a gentleman over here who was maybe at the Republican convention Uh, down in Indianapolis. I spent two days there helping a friend run for treasurer. She came up three votes short on the last ballot, the third ballot. Um, But um, I have a higher view of government than than a lot of people. Now, I can't say the government's doing what it's supposed to. It's way outside of its lane, so to speak. It's job description from a a biblical point of view. Um, But it, it is a high calling and an important thing. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've enjoyed a career in public life, working on Capitol Hill and then uh, on public issues. So those were kind of my three takeaways. Now, Christ puts this in great um, um, contrast when he's uh, asked in Matthew, should we pay taxes? And this might be a familiar story as the denarius goes around. This is Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Can you imagine trying to trip up Christ? Uh, That's a big assignment. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said, therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Well, there's a lot going on in this passage, but what I want to focus on is Christ says there are things you need to give to Caesar. There are things we need to do. Now, again, as Americans, we are citizens. We own the government. We pick its leaders. We pay its bills. So we have a stewardship responsibility. If you live in Russia, it's very different. You know, your ability to influence your government is exceedingly limited. Mr. Putin has a very tight hand on everything over there. Same thing in a Saudi Arabia or even a, a friendly Middle Eastern country like Oman. You have very little. There's a religious political leader and you are a subject and you are not very um, welcome to speak out on issues. You go get a job, give us some of your money, take care of your family and leave everything else to to us. But here in America, we have this significant responsibility of picking leaders and funding uh, budgets. So um, what I'd submit to you, first off, something you can tell Uncle Eddie at Thanksgiving when he's giving you a hard time, is that you have a responsibility to help pick moral and capable leaders for government. You're going to think of that primarily as a vote. Again, we have a delegate here, so sometimes there are other ways that political leaders are are picked. In Indiana, to help the political parties have some strength and some capacity, we let uh, delegates who are elected uh, in the primary pick certain of our officials to appear on the ballot. So this fall, you're gonna go in the voting booth. I hope everyone here is voting and registered. And you're gonna see the name Dave Elliott for treasurer. And Dave Elliott was just picked yesterday to be the candidate for the Republican Party for treasurer. So people like this gentleman over here use their Christian conviction to help pick a moral and capable leader. Now, I don't know Mr. Elliott. Uh, I was backing a different candidate. What I heard, he sounded like he was pretty uh, competent and he has a good reputation. But we have that responsibility to pick moral and capable leaders so that we can flourish and so that our ne- upcoming generation is being tutored by public officials who at least behave in moral and ethical ways, whether they have a Christian uh, worldview or not. And it's become, this is becoming more and more important because we are drifting away from a traditional Christian culture, traditional understanding. Uh, All the polls show that commitment to religious activity is dropping. Uh, For the last 70 years, about 70% of Americans were a member of a church. They didn't always go every Sunday, but they attended. I think it was as high as 73% in the year 2000. Today, that's below 50. We're now at 47% of Americans are members of a church, and we're attending church less, and there's less and less of a commitment to church. I see this in our work in the State House. Twenty years ago when I walked in the State House, if I talked about the denarius or Christ in the coin, the, the legislator might have heard the story. Maybe they were a person of faith, but at least they'd been in Sunday school a few times. Maybe their grandmother took them, maybe their grandfather read them Bible stories. There was a little bit of a common ground. Today, that's I can't take that for granted. Um If they're my age or older, maybe I can, but the younger generation is not being introduced to religion and and faith in any significant and meaningful way. So our capacity as voters and activists in our community to pick moral and ethical leaders will become more and more uh, important. Uh, Secondly, second argument for uh, Uncle Eddie is what I mentioned earlier about money. not only does government take 40% of our money, but maybe even more importantly, it spends it. Do you know how much money Planned Parenthood gets from the federal government every year? It's over $500 million. We've tried to stop it. We've tried to stop it. We've tried to stop it. And we get blocked. We being the other side, the other team, the pro-life community. Um, our government spends all kinds of money. And I don't want to suggest that when you stand before God and give an accounting of your life, he's going to say, you know, why didn't you stop the Planned Parenthood money? But I think he's going to want to know if you spoke out. He's going to want to know if you were aware of where your finances were going. So not only does government take a lot of money, but it spends, and spends, and spends, and spends our money, especially the federal government. I could go down the list of crazy studies, studying you know rabbit saliva glands and, and all kinds of the wacky stuff that, that you hear about all the time, but just know that it, it's happening. People go to DC and they argue for their cause, they get it in a budget, they get a committee chairman to agree, they slide it in late at night in a, in a backroom deal. And then it's just about impossible to get it uh, out of there. Even the hot-button visible things like Planned Parenthood, we've been trying to get them defunded for years. We came close uh, in the past administration because of the courageous work of an Indiana physician, happens to be my daughter-in-law's mother, who's a medical doctor and took a job in the Department of Health and Human Services. And she wrote a regulation saying that If you receive money for these health clinics, which is how Planned Parenthood gets its money, if you receive money from the federal government for these screenings, for distributing birth control pills and and devices and so forth, you cannot co-locate, have in the same place, any abortion services. She wrote that regulation as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services and got it on on the books, and there was a lot of screaming and howling, and people said... Horrible things about her. Diane uh, Foley is her name. Um, and uh, that's all been undone with the new administration. With a stroke of a pen, they, they undo that, and you can now co-locate uh, abortion. You can't use the past money you received, but future funding. So Planned Parenthood is, is back in the, in the game again. Um, so our government not only takes money, but it spends money, and I, I, you need to be aware of that. And we would relish the opportunity at the Family Institute to keep you informed if you come on our website and and do other things, um, newsletters or attend our events or other educational opportunities. The next thing to share with Uncle Eddie when he's giving you a hard time is that governments make statements, moral statements, all the time. Every law is really a worldview. Every law says... We have a point of view here that we think is good for society, and we're going to likely enforce that as as your government. So we don't let people drive crazy because we are committed to safe roads and streets. Um, we tell people that uh, they need to pay their taxes. We tell people that you can't lie to the FBI. That, that lesson didn't get taught very well in Washington, but... Uh, that's, that's one of our laws. But our courts have also said abortion's okay. Abortion is a person's decision. We think that's wrong, and it appears very likely that the U.S. Supreme Court's going to overturn that, um, perhaps even tomorrow morning. They announce decisions in a kind of a – there's a pattern to how they do things, and Mondays tend to be 10 a.m. when they announce uh, most decisions. If it's not tomorrow, it could be Wednesday, could be next Monday, or any day next, next week. They're usually done by July 1st. And if you follow this, as we prayed earlier, the so-called Dobbs case, named for the person who brought the lawsuit in Texas, there was an unprecedented leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion. It's never happened before. There's been leaks from the court, rare, but never a draft opinion. And the opinion said there is no right in the US Constitution to an abortion. The case was wrongly decided in 1973 and then reinforced in 1992. And the states should decide what they want to do about abortion. Sincerely, Samuel Alito. And he had uh, four votes with him. Uh, the Chief Justice was not on hit on the draft, so he could, there could be a sixth vote to overturn uh, Rowe and Uphold Dobbs, uh, the three liberals were already off the case and, and mad. So a very unusual and unprecedented leak. Still don't know where it came from. Uh, there's two schools of thought. One is the liberal justices were so upset they thought they could maybe derail the thing if they got it out. Um, the other is the pro-life justices were concerned what would happen, in the culture, and they leaked it uh, early to kind of prepare people for a major decision. I don't know, um, but I do know that the Supreme Court in the last few days has put barricades around the building. They've built huge, impenetrable fences, wire, thick steel mesh fences, all the way around the U.S. Supreme Court. So something's coming. It's right across the street from the U.S. Capitol if you've been up to Capitol Hill, and it's now. A fortress. They're they're barricaded in there so they can deliver the Dobbs decision. Mm -hmm. Um, Think about what's gone into this. You know, there was a bad decision in 1973, maybe the worst in the history of our country. It's certainly as bad as Dred Scott, which said slaves are property. As bad as Plessy versus Ferguson, which said separate but equal is okay. We've had other you know mistakes the courts made over the years, but this has led to tens of millions of babies uh, being aborted. But think about all the things that have gone into overturning this decision. And you can share that with Uncle Eddie at Thanksgiving. We have a moral conviction that life is life, that all life is, bears the image of God and is worthy of our protection and care, including unborn life. And nine justices rejected that in 1973, and we've been scrambling ever since. We have a million marchers in January go to Washington, D.C., Those of us in politics have advocated and worked and elected people who were pro-life. We have worked on legal strategies over the years to get cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe. Indiana has passed probably 20 laws challenging Roe in one way or another, regulating the abortion industry, saying you have to have humane disposal of of uh, any aborted uh, child, Um, and on and on it goes. One of our cases went all the way to the Supreme Court. We passed a law, we thought, IFI, we thought this was a great strategy. We said, in Indiana, you cannot have an abortion if you're doing it because the baby is of one gender or the other, so you can't have sex discrimination, or is of one race or another, (laughs) racial discrimination or has a birth defect or a, a, a handicap. And all three of those things are in the law for people who are alive and born. You can't discriminate by race, you can't uh, discriminate by uh, handicap, and you can't discriminate gender. You have to pay equally, you have to have equal accommodations. We thought, this is going to be great. Went up to the US Supreme Court, and Clarence Thomas was the only one who who agreed with us, eight to one, we got wiped out. Um, But Thomas said, yeah, all these things that Indiana wants to do, the only difference is a born or unborn uh, child. But just think about all the work, all the elections, all the campaign fundraisers, all the voter registration drives we've been doing over 50 years to come to this moment where maybe, possibly, we think the US Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, And that's the kind of activity you need, and that's the kind of thing you need to tell Uncle Eddie at Thanksgiving, that you're proud to be a part of, and you're not going to back down. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to trumpet it. You don't have to be holier than everyone else in the room, but just let them know you're going to be articulate and advocating for your views and and your values. The final point I'd like to make that we can derived from, from the Bible and from our uh, commitment to rendering under Caesar what is Caesar's and under Christ what is Christ's. There's there's one special issue that's maybe even more important than the abortion issue that we need to as the church be advocates for and fight for, and that's freedom of religion. You might hear the First Amendment. Certainly that's kind of the core, the corpus of it, but there are many expressions of religious freedom that our government um, seeks to and generally does uh, uphold. Uh, The cases in the last decade have been pretty good on religious liberty. They're kind of getting it, that as Christians are more of a minority and the larger culture is more hostile toward people of faith, that we need to protect Christian rights, the right to worship, the right to have a Bible that's not... uh, Uh, adulterated or edited by government in in any way, to have a chaplain in the military of your faith and persuasion so that as you wrestle with the spiritual issues that serving our country in combat gives rise to, you have uh, godly counsel and uh, spiritual care. Uh, And on and on it goes, praying before a football game. You probably heard a case about the coach all on his own, didn't ask any players. He went out to the 50-yard line after a football game, bowed his head and said a little silent prayer, went back. He's been sued. He he lost his job. And his case is in front of the Supreme Court. Um, So I think the church has a special responsibility to steward our religious liberty, our religious freedoms uh, in this country. Because if we don't stand up, who is? It used to be the ACLU would fight for us. But uh, they've they've given up. They're they're a one-sided uh, operation now. They used to help the minority religions in our country uh, have access to be able to preach or teach or go to school, or um, and and they just they've just given all that, given all that up. Well, I hope I've shared with you here today a, a couple of thoughts. Um, if I could just go back to the abortion issue for one moment, I'm I'm so passionate about that. We're on the cusp here. I had the privilege of talking with the Speaker of the Indiana House yesterday and I think our legislators will respond pretty quickly to the uh, uh, overturning of Roe. So if you're inclined to pray, this would be a great time to pray for wisdom in all 50 state capitals and the U.S. Capitol where the abortion issue is likely to change dramatically whenever this case is formally uh, handed down. And in Indianapolis, there's a commitment to doing the right thing as quickly as possible. I reminded the speaker yesterday, there's on average 22 abortions every day in Indiana. So to wait a month or six months until they're back in session is to, is to not see some of our fellow citizens get to take their first uh, breath. So I would, I would ask you to, to pray and just remind you that we in this country have a unique opportunity. We're stewards of this government. We pick the leaders and pay the bills and we need to speak up and direct where that money goes. We need to select good and godly leaders and we need to stand up for these important issues like abortion and religious freedom. And I thank you again for your support of the Family Institute which allows us to be in the state house every day and uh, to be your voice and your advocate on these uh, issues in, in Indianapolis. Thank you very much, Pastor, for uh, your warm welcome today. And I can't see the clock, but I think I'm doing okay here. Got I got 10 minutes. Okay. Well, then I can start bragging on these books down here. Um, um, I don't normally brag on my own book, but um, I think you'll find that... Um, uh, I guess you can't hear me if I go. Um. Please come up afterwards. I'd like to get that denarius back, by the way. Uh <laughs> But up here in this corner is a 1240 Bible called the Vulgate. It's written in Latin. And Vulgate comes from the same root word we get, vulgar, which mean, it used to mean common. Uh, but now it kind of has a negative connotation. But that was the language of, of the church for a long time. Uh, the Holy Roman Catholic Church, everything was in, in Latin. And a big part of the Reformation was we want the Bible in our own, our own language. Uh, right next to it is uh, some of uh, Augustine's confessions. Augustine is probably the most important uh, church leader outside of the Bible. Uh, he wrote in about 400 A.D., and among the many things he did, he invented the autobiography. He wrote a book about himself and his spiritual journey. It's pretty clever. I've not read it. Just pick it up and go through cover to cover, but he's got amazing insights, uh, So if you're looking for a church father to learn more about, Augustine would be uh, a good one. I think he's the most influential uh, thinker in Christianity, aside from the authors of the Bible, Paul, John, etc. Then we have a complete Tyndale, uh, excuse me, uh, Wycliffe, New Testament. Again, Wycliffe was the guy who said we should have the Bible in English, get it out of Latin and into English so the common person could understand it. And he started copying them, getting a team of people together by hand. And the crown, the the king, put him to death for that. He was martyred for his faith. Then along comes Tyndale. And we have a Tyndale um, Bible here as well. And as I mentioned, he is uh, the publishing house is named for him. The major difference there is 200 years later, Gutenberg's press has been invented. And um, uh, we're now printing them. And you could do one Bible took about nine months for the monks to write everything down. And as you'll see, this one, it's ornate and decorated and beautiful. So it probably took over a year for this one. Um, But now you could print 50, 60 Bibles a year. So productivity surged. And the Bible became very, very common. And the conversation continued on. And the King of England finally had to relent. And we got the uh, authorized... 1611 King James version of the Bible. I did not bring that. It's a big tome. It's a big dude. And they would have a a pulpit like this, and they would put that Bible, and there was generally one for every church in in England. They printed about 20,000, and we have a full one. And ours is called a He Bible, because in the very, very first 1611 King James Bibles, um, there's a typo in the Book of Ruth. And they say he went forward instead of she. It was referring to Ruth. And so if you have a he, 1611, you know it was very early in that printing of 20,000 from 1611 to, to 1620. Then I brought Calvin, who's uh, one of the major thinkers for those of us who uh, think about government. Uh, his institutes give us a real true systematic theology. And most theologians today are borrowing and building off of, off of what Calvin said uh, for Catholics, that is uh, that uh, core uh, uh, thinker is Aquinas, and we have a, one of Aquinas' works over here, 1475. Uh, Aquinas is more familiar in, in the Catholic Church, and uh, this is only one of three known copies in the world of, that survive of his uh, 1475 Summa Theologica Um So um, thank you very much, and I'll linger up here with the books. If you want to come up and and see them, you can even touch a page. I just ask you not bring up water or coffee or Coke or anything, just kind of if you're going to come up and take a look. Uh, And I'd like to shake your hand, and thank you again for supporting the Indiana Family Institute. Blessings to you all.
0: Thank you so much, this was very informative, very good. So where's the coin at this point? Who's not yet seen it? This whole row over here, okay. So, um, Brian, I'll make you responsible to make sure it gets to you and then gets back to Kurt. How's that sound? I do not accept that <laughs> <laughs> Well, you could delegate it to somebody. So, I don't trust this group. You're very trusting, giving that coin out. Somebody's going I, liable to walk away from it, but no. In all seriousness, the um, uh, we've heard we have um, been exposed to these things before. We like to reinforce them from time to time, and really appreciate what Kurt shared with us today. We. You know the scriptures say that to whom much is given much is expected we have been given a participatory democracy in this in this country that we live and we will indeed stand before God and give an account to how we engaged in that or didn't engage and so this was a good reminder today and a good a good emboldening us to um to to move forward with our convictions in this and hopefully uh tomorrow we'll have good news if not maybe the next the following week we'll have good news and I'm pretty confident that it will be good news. But again, I think as Nate prayed earlier, just what this does is there'll be a moment of celebration, but then we have to repurpose ourselves and redirect our efforts in a very focused way, state by state. So you know what to do and you know how to do it. We've talked about these things before. So I have you stand and I'm going to close with these words from... Paul, as he wrote to the Galatians, he said, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So you are dismissed. Go in Christ's name. Enjoy each other and serve each other in love and do uh, 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 make yourself um, take advantage of this presentation. It's some pretty cool stuff here.